You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Many scientists believe that dreaming is just a meaningless byproduct of memory consolidation. Why do we dream? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Harvard Professor of Psychiatry and Dream Researcher, Alan Hobson. Welcome. It's great to be here, Leslie. Dr. Hobson, can you tell us where dreams come from? Well, dreams occur when the brain is activated in sleep. The big surprise is that, you know, the brain is so intensely activated during sleep that it's hard to believe that it was missed for thousands of years, but it wasn't until, you know, 1953 that Azarinsky and Kleitman described this process, which is called REM sleep, because together with the activation of the brain, are these extraordinary clusters of saccadic eye movements. If you activate the brain in any state, it's going to have mental activity. I mean, and so the simplest answer to your question is that, you know, brain activation and sleep is, is what is responsible for dreaming. Now, having said that, we should point out that the brain is never completely deactivated. In other words, the brain doesn't turn off at all during sleep, ever. And that's, of course, a tremendous surprise to people because even such great scientists as Sherrington and Pavlov thought that brain activity ceased. And the reason for that is that you know we're generally unconscious and our memory for dreams is at best slight. So uh, consciousness uh, appears to be a very poor guide to what's going on in sleep. And the brain is, is uh, 80% activated when it's at its most deactivated state. So what that means, of course, is that consciousness is just following the top of the activation curve. But there's a lot going on under the surface there, and that's what's probably of great interest to psychiatrists and physiologists. So people tend to think that sleeping is a quiet process in the brain. Apparently it's not. No, it's, it's not at all. It's, it's very, very active, and that's why it makes, makes it hard for us to accept the notion that dreaming has no function. Now, of course, dreaming could be as the subjective awareness of an important activation state of the brain. And so it could be that, you know, remembering dreams and having the conscious experience of dreams, especially during subsequent waking periods, is not terribly important. But that's not to say, and it shouldn't be taken to suggest that REM sleep is not important, because it is. I mean, we know very clearly that REM sleep and, and that other forms of sleep are essential to life. Let's say that for the physician, and especially for the psychiatrist, dreaming has the magnificent function of informing us about very unusual mental states that occur in perfectly normal people. So if we want to study psychosis, for example, we can look at dreams because they have all the formal qualities that are true of psychosis, and we can study dreams themselves, or we can study REM sleep as a way of getting uh, our hands on this problem of psychosis. And I mean, th- that's been the major obstacle, I think, to progress in our field is we, we just haven't had a, a model and, or any way to go about this. And we've gone about it in probably very heavy-handed manner, trying to you know discern the genetics of schizophrenia and stuff like that without ever understanding anything about how the brain actually generates hallucinations, delusions, uh, cognitive disturbances, memory loss, emotional intensification, all of those things are handed to you right on a plate 
when you look at human dreaming. They may be handed to me on a plate, but I don't know how to eat it. What do you do with this information? You just cross-correlate the dream material with the brain activity. And the important first step is to get away from content analysis. Content analysis, you know, tries to answer the question, what does this dream mean? For 3,000 years, we've had speculation after speculation. Let me emphasize that important shift, paradigm shift, if you want, intellectual shift to make is between content analysis and formal analysis. By formal analysis, I mean what sensory modalities are represented during dreaming. Vision, movement, somatosensory stuff, much less taste, smell, things that are really fairly common and impressive in waking. Pain is almost completely absent. So, you know, the sense modalities, that's one of the formal properties. So that gets you to hallucinations. I mean, if you if you can see things when there's no external stimulus available, that means that the brain is capable of generating formed visual images on its own. And that's a very important fact to realize. Now you, you'd like to know, well, how can that happen? Well, the obvious answer is you activate the visual system and you activate it in parts of the brain which are capable of formed perception. And the brain is just loaded with all of these percepts. They aren't coming from the outside world. They're triggered by the by stimuli from the outside world when we're awake. But uh, when we're not awake and when our eyes are closed, the brain is perfectly capable of generating formed visual imagery. So that's a very important point. You don't have to be sick to do it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Harvard professor Dr. Alan Hobson. Dr. Hobson, then where do dreams go? Well, that's another interesting point. You know, another formal feature of dreams is poor memory. And uh, you have poor memory for the dream after the fact. I mean, I don't know how many you remember from last night, but I don't remember any. And when I get a show of hands in an audience of people who are pretty wide awake, less than a third of the people have any recall of dreams the morning after. So where did they go? Well, I think there's there's a simple amnesia that exists actually during REM sleep. I mean, I think when you do remember a dream, you often know that you can't remember all of it. So it's already lost, even though you have recall for scenes, let's say, four and five, you know that scenes one, two, and three have already fallen off the back end of memory. So the memory is very fleeting, very weak. And the reason for that, we think, is that the chemical systems that are responsible for learning and memory in the brain namely the noradrenergic and serotonergic systems, are disenabled during REM sleep. Now, those neurons stop firing altogether. The brain stops being bathed in those chemicals. And that's a radical, radical change. Now, Dr. Hobson, you wrote a remarkable book called The Dream Drugstore. And part of the book talks about how medications affect dreaming. Can you tell us about some of that? Practically all of the drugs that are used in psychopharmacology affect the uh, aminergic neuronal systems that we've just been talking about. The neurons are in the brain stem. They send axons all over the brain, and the brain is perfused in low but, but constant levels of norepinephrine and serotonin throughout the day. The same thing that I'm saying about norepinephrine and serotonin also applies to the histamine system, by the way, not to the dopamine system. The cholinergic system has an exactly opposite set of properties, Now, if you think about these drugs that you use to try to help people with their mood or 
hallucinatory problems, practically all of them interact with these uh, neurochemicals. And that's not surprising. I mean, that means we're on the right track with the neuropharmacology and we're on the right track with the physiology. The fact that they sort of reinforce each other, I think, is, is an important sort of sign that the science is improving. The problem is, of course, uh, that these drugs are potent. I mean, they do affect the noradrenergic and serotonergic systems. And those systems are not just in there, you know, to keep you from having hallucinations and delusions. They're in there in order to enable you to have memories and regulate your mood and all the rest of it. So when you start to tamper with those drugs, you're going to have some very potent effects, but you're also going to have some very surprising side effects. And, of course, most physicians already know that. And this isn't meant to knock the pharmaceutical companies because I think they've you know, done their best to produce drugs that will be effective. But, you know, to mimic the subtleties of regulation of these chemicals that the brain has innately built into it is a tall order. And when you swamp the system with a reuptake blocker that, you know, suddenly raises the levels of serotonin throughout the system, you're going to have all sorts of effects that, some of which you probably don't want. Like what? For instance, people who take Prozac, some of them complain very bitterly that they dream all night. Dreams never stop, and that they have, uh, you know, horrendous dreams, they, extremely anxious dreams. And that's not surprising in the sense that you've disrupted the normal physiological control of this important neurochemical. Moreover, you wreck sleep architecture with these drugs. So, you know, if you think that sleep architecture should be uh, neat and tidy as it normally is, then you're in for a big surprise when you look at a sleep record of a of a subject who's taking Prozac. It looks like hell. It's really ruined. So uh, just from a common sense point of view, you would expect not only are there problems with excessive dreaming, but there may be other problems as well. For example, I mean, we know now that these amine reuptake blockers are very potent in setting the stage for a very fascinating sleep disorder called REM sleep behavior disorder. REM sleep behavior disorder is not known to most physicians it should be because it's not sleepwalking. It is actually the acting out of dreams. Sleepwalking occurs in stage four of non-REM sleep. REM sleep behavior disorder occurs in REM sleep, and it occurs in 50 to 60-year-old men when it is always a harbinger of oncoming Parkinsonism. Now, to get back to the main story, if you take Prozac for four or five years, you're very likely to set the stage for REM sleep behavior disorder, which sets the stage for Parkinsonism. So what else is new? You've got a problem that is like tardive dyskinesia in that you know you give a patient uh, Thorazine and they take Thorazine for 15 or 20 years and they don't have any delusions or hallucinations to speak of. They can function fairly well. So then along comes tardive dyskinesia. I mean, who wants to have Parkinsonism at age 40? Not many people. So the point of all of this is to recognize that the good news is that these drugs are powerful. I mean, they do, they do interact with brain systems that are known to be important in regulating mood and regulating the, the uh, capacity to hallucinate or not hallucinate. But they also have many other functions which are important, including especially motor system functions. Any other medicines that are commonly prescribed that, that have a profound influence on our sleep or dreaming? The mixed 
adrenergic, uh, aminergic drugs like Paxil, very potent effects. Most of those are good with respect to uh, suppressing something like narcolepsy, but they're probably problematic when they're given for depression, in part because they so strongly affect the uh, sleep systems and dream systems. And You know, again, you, you just have to be prepared, I think, for not to be surprised by what patients tell you when they're in their sixth week of Axel and they start seeing crocodiles in the bedroom and stuff like that. I want to thank you so much today, Dr. Hobson. Dr. Hobson is a dream researcher and author of The Dream Drugstore, among many other books. We've been discussing the science behind dreaming. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.